0: Sunday. Uh, If you're new, welcome. My name is Steve, one of the pastors here. It's our great joy to welcome you and help you take your next step with Jesus, however that may be. As Steve said, if you are new, you can find us at the welcome table in the back. You can talk to any one of our pastors or our volunteer teams to get answers to uh, questions you may have about what Citadel Square is all about and uh, find out what's happening. So uh, like he said, in the back at that welcome table or anybody, any one of our pastors down front here would love to help you. Uh, If you are new, we are in a study of the book of Luke. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it? If you don't have one, there should be one in the pew rack right in front of you, a black one. Uh, Go ahead and find it and turn to Luke chapter 5. Uh, Some texts that you come to in the New Testament almost preach themselves. Uh, You really don't have to do a lot of work as a preacher when you get to texts like this. This uh, This is essentially another miracle text. Last week we spent time looking at Jesus and his encounter with a leper, an individual who was on the outskirts of society, who would continuously cry out unclean, who somehow found his way into the presence of Jesus, where he was pronounced clean and healed of his defilement. Well, today we have another, uh, another miracle. And Luke has been intentional as, as he's been building his gospel, really from the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, where he moves out from the wilderness and then into public ministry in his hometown. We have been uh, essentially building an apologetic for who Jesus is. He's been doing remarkable things. Would you agree in the story, in the book of Luke? He's, Yes? Okay, he's been doing remarkable things. His ministry has essentially been characterized by healing and teaching. In fact, that's where we left last week. If you look up just one verse or two in the paragraph that we looked at last week where Jesus cleanses a leper, this is in 515, uh, Luke says that even more the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to do two things, to hear him and to be healed of their infirmity. So it's, it's one thing for Jesus to be a great teacher. That's fantastic. It's great to hear Somebody teach with authority so much so and so well that the demons are subject to this individual. Number two, it's great to be a healer. It's great to be the absolute best healer the world has ever seen, far surpassing any physicians of the time. But what you have up to this point in the book of Luke is a, a development of the identity of this person, Jesus. If you remember the temptation passages... In the temptation passages with Satan, Satan asked a very particular question. If you are the what? The son of God, then turn these stones to bread. As Jesus encounters his hometown synagogue and walks into the synagogue and reads from the book of Isaiah, he says, this passage has been fulfilled today in your hearing. And he reads a passage that refers to the divinely ordained, spirit-empowered servant of God, When Jesus casts out demons, the demons come out of people claiming that he is the Christ. He is the Holy One of God. Both the leper and Peter have declared Jesus not just to be master, but to be Lord. Well, today as we're building this, uh, this identity of Jesus and who he is, uh, we're going to find another title that is the first time Luke will use this title. You actually have several firsts in this passage. You have the first use of an incredibly important biblical term called faith. It, in Luke's writings, it's the first time faith is used. You have a title of Jesus that's given to him, that Jesus will use of himself, and it's it's Jesus' favorite title, his favorite way to refer to himself. Luke will use this term 25 times all through the course of the rest of his gospel. It's the term son of man. And you'll see how Jesus refers to himself in this passage as the son of man. It's our first introduction to Jesus' opponents. In fact, from this story and really the next two weeks, you're going to see Jesus encounter his opposition where Jesus is now going to be face-to-face and mano imano mano with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They're going to be the antagonist to the ministry of Jesus Christ. They're introduced here for the first time in Luke's gospel. But what you're finding as we move through this passage uh, and what you'll see here today, uh, you remember how Luke begins his gospel with the ministry of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist arrives on the scene proclaiming for a baptism for the repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And that idea of forgiveness of sins characterized all of John the Baptist's ministry. But here, another first, will be the first time that concept and that idea of the forgiveness of sins is attributed to Jesus. Now, no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, the term sin is a loaded term, Right? You may not even use that term all that common. It's not a common term that you hear in the media or on blog posts or social media or really in the the natural rhythm of our lives. It's very rare for somebody to bring up the term explicitly and really use it correctly of sin. We may talk about mistakes. We may talk about failures. We may talk about regrets. But in fact, when we come to the biblical concept of sin, really sin characterizes the entire biblical story, right? Right? From the beginning of the Bible, from Genesis chapter 3, all the way until Revelation 20, when the new heavens and the new earth begin, every single sentence deals with how we are going to face the reality of sin. In fact, every single world religion understands that something is dreadfully wrong with humanity. Something is dreadfully wrong with the world. And virtually every Human world religion, apart from maybe Hinduism that defines sin as merely an illusion, every other world religion says that there's a problem out there that needs to be fixed. And the Bible uses the term for that problem and describes it as sin. Now, we know sin is a reality because we all have standards, right? You have standards by which you live and work and go about your day-to-day life and you feel the reality of breaking that standard. In fact, you have standards that you apply to other people to maintain relationships with you that if other people would drive the way you drive, you think everyone would be a lot better off. Amen, right? You all know that. We all have that inborn standard that we carry with us, whether it's relationally or whether it's in our jobs, whether it's in the way we drive, whether it's the way we spend our money, whether, whatever it is, we all have inherent standards that we hold ourselves to. But then we violate those standards. And we know visceral realities in our lives that come up where we have felt the experience of regret. Regret. We have felt what it means to break our own word. If you've been sinned against, if you have dealt with sin in your life for an extensive period of time, then you know the inherent visceral subjective experience of things like guilt and things like shame. And the question is, when we come to a passage like this, what are we going to do with sin? Is the church basically a group of people who are just interested in spiritual things, like people are interested in gardening and working on the engines and software engineers? Is that what the church is, just a bunch of generally mystical, spiritually minded people? Or does the church have a message that's an important message for every single person who's ever lived and who ever will live that pertains to every single person in all places and at all times? What do you think? So, if the church has a message to deal with the most significant human problem known as sin, defined biblically as sin we have to ask the question, what are we going to do with sin? Are we going to avoid it? Are we going to adjust our standards? Are we going to modify it? Are we going to explain it away? Are we going to justify ourselves in our own eyes? What are we going to do with sin? And this passage shows you what an individual in any time, in any place can do to have their sin taken away. So that's good news, amen? That's a great, that's a great, that's one of the best intros I've given this year, <laughs> frankly. So let's pray. We'll look at Luke uh, Chapter 5, 17 to 26. Father, for these few minutes, as we have already sung, we've already spoken from Psalm 130, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And we long for God more than the watchman long for the morning. That you are the God who redeems us from all our iniquities. And as we pause and meditate on that reality, and we prepare our hearts to look into your word, we pray that for all people in this room... That they might gain a new vision of the fact that their sins can be washed clean. That they might gain even a new experience as all of us have come into this place having committed sins even this morning. And would we find hope once again in the blood of Christ and what he has done for us on the cross. So would you teach us, would you shape us? Would you remind us of the power of your word and the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. All right, Luke 5, verse 17 is where we're going to be, right in the middle of that chapter. Luke 5, verse 17. Y'all there? Let's go. Verse 17, on one of those days. Now, Luke has, has been pretty... Uh, for being a data guy, you remember Luke writes a gospel that really has to do with him as being very particular about details. He's a little bit random in these last two stories. Jesus last time was in one of the cities. He didn't even bother to name it. And here, Jesus is teaching on one of those days. And as he was teaching, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there. Now, you remember last week when we looked at Jesus uh, and his ministry? His ministry was overflowing the bounds of the synagogue. And we found Jesus in the Uh, in the countryside, around the lake, the Sea of Galilee. And the crowds were pressing in on him, longing to hear his teaching. Well, Luke begins this story a little bit differently because up to this point, uh, we haven't been introduced to these individuals, as I said, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Implicitly, they were clearly there, some element of the Jewish teaching uh, population was there when Jesus went his, was in his hometown synagogue, but they were generally referred to. Here it's very explicit. So that as Jesus steps into this story, we're introduced to individuals who were very, very important in the Jewish religious system. The Pharisees and teachers of the law made up one of four major categories of religious and political leaders of the day. The Pharisees were the uh, essentially the Old Testament law uh, students. The teachers of the law. They were very invested in thinking about how we can properly interpret the Old Testament law. The Sadducees were somewhat of the more uh, richer and upper class political religious leaders. They didn't believe so much in uh, the resurrection. They had other differing, more liberal views of the scriptures. You had a third group called the Essenes, which were essentially the mystics. They were incredibly ascetic and sought to withdraw and have mystical experiences. And then you had the Zealots, which were basically the political insurrectionists. So you can imagine all of those groups of people being around, but these two people, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, are incredibly important for this setting. And they're going to be important to this story for Luke. Because last week we saw Jesus deal with a leper. Remember that? And he dealt with the leper in his issue of defilement. And he dealt with the leper by cleansing him and then sending him to give the offering that Moses commanded for their cleansing. He said, you go and obey the Old Testament Levitical law from Leviticus 14, and you go to the priest and you tell them you're bringing a sacrifice. So last week, Jesus' relationship to the law was somewhat unclear, other than we said that Jesus was a faithful, Old Testament-believing, Old Testament-faithful Jew. Well, when we encounter Jesus exploding onto the scene and being a teacher, he's now joining the teaching ranks of the day. And every, now watch how many teachers are here. Watch how many seminary professors show up in this house to hear Jesus and his teaching and watch his healing. As he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee. That's the, Galilee is the group of cities that's just north of the Sea of Galilee. That's where uh, we were when in Peter's house in Capernaum. You've got the, the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees and teachers of the law from Galilee. Number two, you have them from Judea, which is the entire southern portion. Not only that, you've got the PhDs who live and work around the temple complex in the city of Jerusalem, and they are there as well. So can you feel the the tension, can you feel the possibility of critique happening right as we begin this story? If you ever teach in front of people who are in your field, you know there's a higher level of critique, right? You better make sure that you say things exactly right, because the people who are listening know their stuff. Well, the people who are listening to Jesus know their stuff, and they're all in this house Now, Luke finishes the first verse of his, this story by giving you one sentence that feels a little bit out of place, but I think is really important for what Jesus is about to do. Look at the remainder of verse 17. He says, The power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now, all through the beginning of Luke, power and the spirit of, Lord, of the Lord are equated. So essentially what we're saying as this story begins is that Jesus is around the most powerful, stringent interpreters of the law in his day. They are the most conservative, the most biblical, the most seriously and high-minded about the truths of God and his word that he has given. But at the very same time, we have Jesus who has the spirit of God, the power of God with him to heal. Now, that tells us something important about Jesus and who he is. Jesus is not just an individual out there wandering off and doing God-sized things and then coming back in his relationship with his heavenly father. Everything about Jesus and his ministry during his time on earth is characterized by total submission and faithfulness to what God wants him to do through the power of the Spirit so that all of Jesus' life as a human on this planet is done and enacted by faith in his heavenly Father and through dependence on the Spirit of God. Now, because we know the Spirit of God and the power of God is with him to heal at this point, don't you think a healing is coming? right? So we know from the beginning of this story that we can feel in the water that something's about to happen, that the Spirit of the Lord is about to affirm this individual who has been a healer and a teacher. This individual who is incredibly popular. This individual who is standing face to face with some of the most conservative biblical scholars of his day. So As we go into this, you need to ask the question, what do miracles say about Jesus? All through the Bible, the miracles are given to validate the message, to validate the messenger. It's heaven's declaration that we agree with who this person is and we agree with what he says. That's important. So the power of God is with Jesus to heal. Now, Let's, uh, let's watch how he moves forward. We're introduced to another group of people, not just the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They fade into the background. And now we see kind of the inciting moment of this entire passage in verse 18. And behold, which is Luke's way of saying, pay attention, just like we said last week with the leper. Behold, a leper in one of the cities. Here, behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him and to lay him Before Jesus. Now, paralysis is not as severe a condition as leprosy was. Leprosy carried with it a profound amount of social uh, embarrassment, of social consequences. Paralysis really has more to do with physical weakness. This is an individual who has lived his life primarily dependent upon the goodwill and the kindness and the generosity of others. If you remember, these are individuals who are generally outside the normal rhythm of Jewish religious life. So if you remember in the book of Acts, one of the very first miracles that happens in Acts chapter 3 is that Peter and John are on their way up to the temple. And as they're on their way up to the temple, they see a man who was lame from birth and he's laid at the gate. And Peter and John encounter this individual and say, silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus Christ... Stand up and walk, and the man stands up and walks. So these individuals, uh, while present in the society, aren't very popular. They're somewhat outskirts individuals. They're individuals who, uh, like I said, are incredibly dependent on others. And what this story shows us is that there are some individuals who know this paralyzed man. They're not named. We don't really know any of the background around them, but these individuals are just simply characterized as some men bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they're seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But, verse 19, finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd. Now, the crowd has been a, uh, was a problem for Jesus in the last section, wasn't it? They were pressing on him, and Jesus had to step into a boat to be able to continue to teach. Here, the crowd forms a bit of a human barrier, that stands in the way of these men and the paralyzed man on the stretcher finding their way to Jesus. Now, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. So before we just continue, I don't, I don't want to skip this, but just imagine the conversations between these men and this guy on the stretcher. You ever been in need of a friend and you're embarrassed to ask for help? You ever felt like you're not really worth people going out of their way to help you and to serve you? You know what that is? That's essentially pride. Let me just burst your bubble real quick. Just a real quick counseling session. That's pride. You gotta be humble enough to ask for help. Okay, that's it. That, put your $150 in one of the boxes. Okay, that's it. Repent of your pride, accept help. That's the whole deal. Imagine the conversations between the man on the stretcher and the friends who were carrying him and trying to get into the house. Hey, uh, guys, we can't get in. I know you're carrying me. There's a whole bunch of people. There's a big barrier. Jesus is in there. I know he's in there. I know he's been healing lots of people. Heard about the leper that he he healed a little while ago. But man, there's just too much to overcome. There's just too much for us to do. Do you try, ever try to get somebody on a stretcher through a house filled with people through the doors? I've, I was an EMT for a period of time and you, would, you cannot imagine the difficulty it is taking people on a stretcher, strapped to a stretcher up and downstairs through doorways and around corners, let alone fill a house with people and try to get one guy to Jesus. And these men can't find the way in because of the crowd, so they climb up on the roof they climb up on the roof and they decide to dig through the roof. Now, you've got to appreciate their ingenuity, their courage, their basic total naivete. How much is the deductible? I don't know. Who's going to call the roofer? It don't matter. What are we doing? We're going we're to dig through the roof. Do you know, it feels like, I don't know if these guys are in college, but it feels like <laughs> these guys. Doesn't it feel like that? There is no bad idea. No bad idea. There's There's no obstacles to these guys. <laughs> Whose house is this? I don't know. <laughs> what are you doing with the shovel? Not sure. <laughs> Who's down there? Jesus. What are you going to do? Let down a stretcher through a hole in the roof. That's your idea? So, let's not miss just the... The profound courage. I mean, you may consider these people foolish. You may consider them brazen. You may look at them and go, what possesses these people to have this kind of idea? Because as they get ready to put Jesus down, they're willing to be not just inconvenienced in carrying a friend, they're willing to persevere in their inconvenience. They're willing to bear the social cost of people saying, you're digging through my roof. (laughs) Imagine what these individuals believe about Jesus, though. You could look at their human courage, and maybe they're a little naive, and maybe they're not that smart, and maybe they just got a lot of energy. But how serious do they take Jesus? How willing are they to take someone who can't help themselves, to bring them and put him in the presence of Jesus? It's stunning to me. Their willingness, their recklessness to say, I don't know, friend, But I think Jesus can help you, and I will do whatever it takes to get you into the presence of Jesus. Now, look at verse twenty. Here's your first introduction of Luke's incredibly important biblical word. When he saw their faith, let's we could define faith from a lot of different places in the Scripture. What does faith look like here? Does faith look courageous? Does faith look like it perseveres? Does faith look like it has a high view of Christ? Does faith look like getting an impossible problem in the presence of Christ is a good idea? Isn't that what, I mean, you look at these guys, and Jesus looks at these guys, and he doesn't go, how foolish and slow to believe you are in the prophets. You should have waited outside and persevered with the gift of patience that only the Spirit of God can give you, and I would have gotten to you because you're number 78. Jesus looks at the tiles falling through the ceiling. He looks at the courage of these friends. He looks at the recklessness that they have to destroy physical property, to put this guy down on ropes in the presence of Jesus. And when Jesus looks at them, what does he see? He sees faith. He sees a willingness to do whatever it takes to get to Christ. And when he does, he says... Man, your sins are forgiven. Note that Jesus doesn't treat our greatest problem as we define it. You know that? Do you have a lot of problems sometimes you feel like are impossible and you bring them to Jesus and you feel like Jesus isn't doing anything. with a really great big problem that I think is important. And you can imagine none of these men who are letting down their paralyzed friend through the... Through the Sealing, are thinking to themselves, we're going to get Jerry's sins forgiven. That's what we're going to do. They didn't think that. What did they think? Here's a guy who's teaching. Here's a guy who's healing. We're going to let our friend down. And maybe Jesus can lay his hands on him and he can heal the greatest problem that we have, that we think our friend has, paralysis. But Jesus, in a word, heals a greater problem, fixes a greater issue which tells you that Jesus, is, all, Jesus uh, is up to things and healing things far deeper than we can see. Do you know that? You may think your greatest problems are physical problems. You may think your greatest problems are material problems. Jesus comes to heal incredibly important, essential, human, spiritual problems. And he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, you can imagine, just imagine, You've got your seminary degree. You've taken the tassel and you've put it on this side. and You're sitting there. (laughs) I'm a teacher of the Old Testament law. (laughs) And here's this teacher who hasn't done anything as far as you can tell because you haven't seen him do anything. And he's got individuals who are really interested to talk to him that they're now let down through the roof. And what Jesus does in this moment is declare that this man's sins are forgiven. This statement is radioactive to the teachers. It is a dynamic explosion in their mind and heart. Look at verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question. That that question word is the same word that we get the term dialogue from. You know that? They began to question. And it's probably internal at this point by what Jesus says next. But now they're in a point of conflict. Because we just heard a healer, yes, a teacher, yes, but we just heard somebody make a claim to deity. And that's a problem for an Old Testament Jew. The Pharisees would consider that blasphemy. Look at what he says. The scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? And that's important. That's the first question that they asked. The second question is really a, uh, an explanation of the first. But the first question is important because it's an identity question. It's an identity question that is immediately discounted. Because they don't believe that Jesus is God. So they take the confession that Jesus makes over this man that his sins are forgiven and they think to themselves immediately, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who is this who speaks on behalf of God? Who dares to have the right to speak for God? So blasphemy is one of the, you can get stoned for blasphemy if you're an Old Testament Jew. You know that? It's not like go sacrifice a goat and two pigeons. It's we take you outside of the camp and we hit you with rocks until you're dead. That's how serious blasphemy is. You can blaspheme God, his name, his tabernacle, his his law. Both Peter and Stephen in the New Testament are called blasphemers. In fact, this is the singular issue that that ultimately will lend uh, credence to the fact that Pilate will be willing to crucify Jesus. Is over in John 10, the Pharisees say of Jesus, you, a mere man, are making yourself equal with God. That's blasphemy. You cannot do that. So their first question immediately is discounted by saying, this man is claiming to speak on behalf of God. No man can do that. Number two, who can forgive sins but God alone? Which, as an Old Testament teacher of the law, is exactly right. They have it right. Their theology is 100% right on. They understand the law. They understand God. They understand that only God can forgive sins. Why? Because sins are first and foremost, ultimately, and only against God. The first sins are against God before they ever make their way out in dealing with people. So when David, who has lied cheated, stolen a wife, committed adultery, and murder, Praise in Psalm 51, he says to, uh, says to the Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. So the Pharisees recognize this individual who's proclaiming forgiveness of sins is claiming deity because he's claiming to be the one who has sinned against. You with me so far? Here's how one commentator put it. He puts it better than I could put it. I was thinking about this, and I got to this, I got these paragraphs, and I thought, I'll just read them this. The law knew no such form as an official forgiving of sins or absolution The leper might be pronounced clean by the priest, and a transgressor might present a sin offering at the temple and transfer his guilt to it by laying his hands on its head and owning his fault before God. And the blood sprinkled by the priest on the horns of the altar and toward the Holy of Holies was an atonement that covered his sins from the eyes of Jehovah and pledged his forgiveness. But that forgiveness was the direct act of God. No human lips dared to pronounce it. It was a special prerogative of the Almighty, and even should mortal man venture to declare it, he could only do so in the name of Jehovah and by his immediate authorization. But Jesus had spoken in his own name. He had not hinted at being empowered by God to act for him. The scribes were greatly excited. Whispers, ominous head shakings, dark looks, and pious gesticulations of alarm. What a great word, gesticulation showed that they were ill at ease. He should have sent him to the priest to present his sin offering and have it accepted. It's blasphemy to speak of forgiving sins. He is intruding on the divine rights. The blasphemer was to be put to death by stoning. His body hung on a tree and then buried with shame. Who can forgive sins but one God? One who usurped the prerogatives of deity according to Levitical law was to be punished by death. So, you can see why this text opens with Jesus and the Pharisees of the law, can't you? You can feel the pressure and the tension building and building and building as Jesus forgives this man's sins. Verse 22 When Jesus perceived their thoughts, which is a big tip off that he's got, <laughs> he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Now, when Jesus asks questions, he's always teaching. Do you know that? Why do you question in your hearts? What is the question that the Pharisees are wrestling with? They're wrestling with who this person claims to be. And through Jesus' question, Jesus' question essentially reveals to us that we shouldn't be asking that question, right? Why do you question in your hearts? This shouldn't be a conversation. This is very easy to me. Don't you understand who I am? Don't you understand what I've been doing? Don't you understand what all of my teaching and all of my miracles are pointing to? They're pointing to the fact that I am God. In the flesh. Now that's a little hard for the Pharisees to take. It's a little hard for the Pharisees to wrap their mind around that reality. Why are you questioning in your hearts? And this is great. Here's another question from Jesus. Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? Now that's, a, that's almost like a Jesus sized riddle, isn't it? Which is easier? Literally, which is the easier work? You know, the the verb to say is mentioned eight times throughout this passage. Jesus is saying stuff, the Pharisees are saying stuff, dialoguing in your heart, and Jesus poses them a question now, which is always a bad idea to have Jesus ask you questions because they always, like, tie you up in knots. But here's the question. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you. Now, why? Hold on. And then, uh, what does he say? Rise and walk. You got two significant statements. And Jesus is saying, rank them for me. Which is easier? Now, to say your sins are forgiven is really easy to say. Do you know that? Why? Why is that easy to say? It's easy to say because we can't test it. There's no empirical evidence that Jesus saying your sins are forgiven happens. Which is the tension in the whole story. The Pharisees and the teachers of law are standing there going like he just, just said something that he expects us to believe that he's God. He expects us to believe that his words really have an impact. He expects us to believe that he can actually forgive sins, not on divine right or prerogative as a prophet, but as the one who was sinned against. And Jesus poses the question to him, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk? Well, to the Pharisees, who can't do, who could do only one of the two, the Pharisees could say your sins are forgiven, but who would believe them? How do you know? What confidence do you have if somebody pronounces forgiveness of your sins? And the Pharisees, they stand there and they look at the paralyzed man still hanging through the ceiling, have to think that the harder thing to do would be to make a paralyzed man walk, right? Right? Because it all goes back to Jesus' word, whether or not we can trust Jesus' word. If Jesus' word has the ability to forgive sins, then what problem is it to make a leper leper walk? (laughs) Okay, Uh, make a paralyzed guy walk. One requires power. They both require power. So it comes back really not only to a question of Jesus' identity, but it comes back to a question of Jesus' power. Because if we're going to ask If Jesus is going to say your sins are forgiven but nobody can test it, it's not empirically tested. What we can test, however, is the fact that Jesus can make a paralyzed man walk. That would be proof that his word is powerful. Verse 24. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That is such a, we could spend two hours on this. I'm just going to treat this real briefly though. One, Jesus is aiming at the confidence of the Pharisees. He's aiming, basically Jesus is using an apologetic that the Pharisees would know who they're talking to. And he says, so that you may know. So everything that's going to follow from what Jesus is about to do is aimed at saying something about who he is. Now the second thing, in this verse is what Jesus calls himself, and if you were an Old Testament Pharisee, an old—I'm sorry—an old, I'm sorry, an old te- a teacher of the Old Testament. If you were a Pharisee at this time, and Jesus uses the term the Son of Man, he is using an incredibly uh, dynamic and powerful and um, resounding theme in the Old Testament that comes from the book of Daniel. Now, in the book of Daniel, Daniel has a vision. And in this vision, there's an individual who comes to the almighty or the ancient of days. And he receives authority from the ancient of days. Here's what it says. You don't need to turn there. This is Daniel seven thirteen. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, Nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one, that shall not be destroyed. Three times we're told that he has dominion or authority. But in the context of Daniel chapter 7, the authority is to rule over the nations as God's divine agent of kingly authority and rule and reign. But Jesus says, wait a minute. Pharisees, so that you would know the Son of Man has authority to rule over the nation's tribes and tongues? Nope. To rule as God's ambassador on earth? Nope. To have all, to have a kingdom given to him that will not pass away? Nope. But that you would know the Son of Man has authority on earth to what? To forgive sins. That statement, guys, that statement is thunderous. So that you would know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now, there's a chasm of tension between verses 24 and 25, isn't there? Because you're waiting to see whether or not Jesus' word has the authority that Jesus says it does. You're waiting to see whether or not Jesus speaking to the paralyzed man can actually accomplish. Because if his word can accomplish causing a paralyzed man to walk, then his word has the authority to forgive sins. Amen? That's the issue. That's the point. So we're waiting to see what is going to happen. The teachers are looking at Jesus. And as Jesus turns from them and he looks to the paralyzed man... And he says to the paralyzed man, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Verse 25, are you surprised that the word immediately is in the first two words? Not a bit. Not a bit. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary, extraordinary things today. So by the end of this passage, the miracle, the power of the Lord that is with Jesus Christ to heal is meant to give us the greatest confidence in the world that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Isn't that good news? That's the best news that you can give to any human on the planet. That Jesus Christ has the authority and the right given to him by God to forgive sins. So why do we gather as a church and sing to Jesus? Why do we repent of our sins when we gather and take the Lord's Supper? Why when we pray and Jesus teaches us to say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Why? Because it's only in Jesus that our sins can be forgiven. There is nothing else on this planet that can give you the certainty and confidence of your sins being forgiven. Do you hear me? Nothing will do it. No addiction, no other religion, no person. The only individual who has the authority and the right given by God to forgive sins is Jesus Christ. You can deny it, you can deceive yourself, you can think you're good with God, but unless you come to God through the person and work of Jesus Christ, who dies on the cross for your sins in your place and has risen from the dead as a testimony that his sacrifice worked, unless you come to that individual, your sins will never, never, never be forgiven. The only hope you have in the presence of the Lord God Almighty is that you have an advocate, the man Jesus Christ, who has taken your sin to the cross and paid for it for you. So when these Pharisees listen to this man say, your sins are forgiven, they hear God himself pronouncing a verdict over individuals' lives that is as certain as the fact that his ankles and knees now work again. And do you notice the effect of Jesus' ministry to this man? He is now walking again. He now gets to go home. The message of forgiveness of sins is a liberating one. Amen? You, can you imagine? Just imagine. Like, we do, I do this. You do this. I know we all do this. We all struggle with sin. But when you embrace what Jesus has done for you, your life is different. There is a new lease on life. You now walk in freedom knowing that the greatest problem in your life, your estrangement in your relationship with God, has now been healed. And you get up, go home whistling, glorifying God for what he has done in your life to take all of your sins away. Christians, amen? Amen. Isn't that the good news? So listen, if you're new to the church or thinking about these things, let me tell you how you can have forgiveness of sins today in Jesus' name. If you've never done this before, I want to be just very explicit about this because we can talk about the fact that Jesus forgives sins. and You may leave out of here going, yeah, but now what, Steve? What am I supposed to do? You can pray very simply just like this. God, I'm a sinner. I have fallen short of the standards that you require for right relationship with you. There are things that I've done that I'm embarrassed of. There are things that I've done that I'm ashamed of. There are things that have the last word in my life right now that have brought me to a point of spiritual paralysis where I am frozen to the bed. And what I need is someone to die on the cross for my sins. And I am going to put my faith in what Jesus has done for me. And I'm going to receive by faith what he has done. And God, I put my faith and trust in you, that you have forgiven my sins, that Jesus has died, Jesus was buried, Jesus rose again. And in his name, I plead your forgiveness. And in that moment, your sins are gone. Everything in the past, everything today, everything in the future, so that you go home glorifying God for what God has done through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me close like this. Here's what Paul says in the book of Romans. And this is really the tension that you have with the teachers of the law. The teachers of the law are waiting to see how in the world people can be right with God. And Paul explains this in the book of Romans. And we'll, we'll close here. I'll have Jared and the band come. Here's what Paul says in Romans 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Father, we pause and confess that we are all sinners in need of a savior. That even today we've committed sins in thought and in word and in deed. And we run to the cross confessing our sins, acknowledging our need for for forgiveness, our need to be redeemed and reconciled to you. And Father, as we confess, I pray that even now that the blood of Christ would cleanse the conscience of men and women in this room to serve the living God that we'd be reminded that our sins are gone in your name, that we are free in your name, that where there was paralysis and death, that there is now a new walk and new life because of what Jesus has done. So we give thanks for Christ and what he has done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.